What's up, everyone? This is episode number 74 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right. Uh, today, I've got a few basketball and hobby headlines Um, I'd like to talk about some mail that I had this week, and then I want to talk a little bit about the reactionary spending and some of the decision-making that I think is at the forefront of the hobby right now. Uh, First off, I want to give kudos, though, to the NBA for how well this whole bubble experience is working out so far. I saw a report this morning that 344 players have been tested for COVID-19, and there have been zero positive tests so far. So if you watched any of the scrimmages this week, you saw firsthand what all the NBA has done to make this as authentic of an NBA game experience as possible. Yes, there is a bit of a summer league feel to it, but that's not really a big deal. They've changed the camera angles a bit. You don't see seats everywhere. They've got big LED boards that show the home team logos and graphics. They've got local advertisements. For example, I know the Pacers had ads for Kroger's and Jack's Donuts. Um, Those are definitely not things that you'd find in Orlando. Um, They're adding digital graphics to the courts. It's really just a great presentation overall. Um, I've actually watched a college game in person at the HP Fieldhouse before, and I can tell you it's not a big arena, which works perfect for what they're trying to do. So um, kudos to them for that. I'm sure many of you are in the same boat with your own teams, but I am so happy to have Pacers basketball back. I missed hearing Chris and Quinn announce games. I missed TJ Warren's mid-range game. Um, I missed heckling TJ Leaf from my couch. I'm a little bummed out that Sabonis had to leave the bubble with a foot injury, but on the bright side, Miles Turner looked great in these scrimmages. Um, As much as I like those two guys, they just don't mesh well together, and I don't think they ever will. Um, The first official Pacers game, though, in this restart is against Philadelphia on Saturday, and I know I can't wait for that. I'll probably go watch that one with my dad, as I do most big games, so I can't wait for that. Um, All right, on to the hobby headlines. I've got a couple of them for you today. Uh, The first one, Rich Muller wrote an article for Sports Collectors Daily this week that talked about a new hire at PSA. Now, I say PSA. It's really the parent company, which is Collector's Universe. But they have created a position called the Vice President of Customer Experience for a gentleman and a collector named Dave Steinberger. And there's a bit of an interesting story behind this because Dave actually emailed Steve Sloan, which I guess it does work, and he introduced himself as a passionate collector and a seasoned executive who, quote, wants to help PSA deliver a more customer-centric experience to others. So Dave approached them. Uh, There's also a quote in the article from Steinberger where he states, As the industry leader, PSA has an opportunity to strengthen its relationship with collectors. The collecting community wants it, expects it, and deserves it. Increased transparency, better communication, improved turnaround times. Well, as you guys know, those have all been issues that um, have needed to be addressed for a long time. And I talked about this on episode 69, but there is a hedge fund called Alta Fox that is currently working to overhaul the board at PSA. And right after Alta Fox published a letter for PSA shareholders, 
PSA issued a letter to collectors and investors talking about the state of the company. Now, they didn't mention AltaFox in this letter, but I don't think the timing was a coincidence. And I will say, even though he technically contacted them first, I don't think this hiring of this new position or this creation of this new position is a coincidence either. Anyway, there's more to that article, but I want to give credit to Rich. Uh, make sure you go check that out. I don't want to go over the whole thing here. All right. Uh, next, there was an interesting um, sports card piece that came up for auction this week. There's always interesting stuff that comes up, but this one really um, caught my eye. Hunt Auctions is offering up a 1986-87 Fleer basketball uncut sheet. And this came from a former Fleer executive, and the auction house estimates that it should sell for anywhere between ten dollars and $15,000. Now, this is a, a pretty special item. It's not the only one out there, though. So it's not like it's the only one that we've ever seen. Uh, there is one on Heritage's website right now where they say that the, the current owner isn't actively looking to sell, although they note there was a $31,000 offer, which that doesn't quite make sense to me. Not all of these numbers are matching up. There's also an uncut sheet right, um, that's up right now at Robert Edwards Auctions, which and they also have an uncut sticker sheet, which that's the only place I see that at right now. So, you know, it's all very interesting. Well, I definitely will not be bidding on that. Um, I always like to see stuff like this because it gives us an inside look at the logistics of things. And I've talked a little bit about uncut sheets when I talked about the 1957 top set. And most of these sheets that I've seen for production have 132 cards on them. So you'll have 12 rows of 11 cards. And for the 1957 set, that was a bit of a predicament because it was only an 80 card set. So in order to fill out that 132 card sheet, they had some cards that were single printed, some were double printed, and then the Bob, Pre the Bob Pettit was quadruple printed. Well, 1986-87 uh, Fleer, on the other hand, was a 132 card set. Which, you know, all these years, I hadn't thought about it much. It seems like an odd number, but when you see that exactly 132 cards fit on a sheet, it makes sense. So none of these were double printed and none of them were short prints or anything like that. Um, and then, like I said, there is a sticker sheet out there right now as well. Those only have 121 stickers on them and that makes for 11 sets of 11 stickers. Uh, now, there are people out there that are chasing graded sets of 86, 87 Fleer um, I don't envy those people at all. That's a, you know, I've done big chases before. They're fun, but um, they're tiring and they cost a lot. And I can only imagine what this one would cost, especially with all the, you know, the subject matter that's in it. Um, I, but it, surprisingly, I've always heard that some guys like Johnny Moore, as far as the commons go, are some of the more difficult cards to grade in the set. And if you look at the pop report, it supports that there are only 65 Johnny Moore PSA 10s. Um, similarly, there are only 63 Jeff Malone PSA 10s. Now, there's not a lot of demand for either one of these guys in the card world overall, so there has to be a reason because some of the other commons uh, in the set have a lot more cards graded or a lot more cards that are uh, registering as 10s. Um, well, if you look at 
this uncut sheet, you notice that Johnny Moore is the second to last card on the top edge. And Jeff Malone is at the very top left. So it all has to do with their positioning on the sheet. Uh, and these types of auctions are important for us, even though you know some of us were not bidding, because it verifies that stuff. Um, you know, to be honest, it doesn't really matter to me what what price this stuff goes for, but I appreciate the chance to look at it, and I encourage you to do so as well. Um, I think I posted it on my social media last week. If not, I'll make sure and get that up because I think this kind of stuff is fun. Speaking of fun. That's going to be my segue to talking about a couple pieces of mail from this week. And as you guys know, if I'm talking about something I got in the mail, usually there's going to be some sort of a backstory. For example, I got a Jermaine O'Neal logo man in this week, but I'm not going to talk much about that because there's really not much to say. I like it a lot, but it was a classic case of I bought it and it showed up. It doesn't really make for compelling listening. But there were a couple packages that I, I think are worth noting and I do want to talk about. Um, the first one of those is an eBay lot that I discovered a couple of weeks ago. And it was listed under football cards. And it was titled Football and Basketball Commons Year 2012 and Up. And there were three stacks. One of those was basketball. And the stack on the left had a Tyler Hansborough card at the top. Um, and it was 2012 Prism. And it looks like in that entire stack, there was a, you know, probably about 100 2012 Prism base cards. And as we know, the definition of common or base card has changed a lot over the last few months. So there are a lot of people, believe it or not, that are still sitting on this stuff and have no clue. So this thing had a starting bid of $5 or you can make an offer. So I threw out a $20 offer uh, and they accepted it. So after shipping, that came out to $26 shipped. Now, I always look and see what else this person is selling because if they were selling like a Prism Kawhi or a Prism Anthony Davis, then I could, you know, feel pretty safe that these commons were actually commons, but they weren't selling any of that stuff. So of course, all the time I'm waiting for this package to show up, there's this dream scenario, you know, well, what if I pulled a Kawhi, you know, what if I pull an Anthony Davis, maybe there's a couple in there, maybe there's a LeBron in there, but at the same time, I still try not to hope for the best, you know, I don't want to present myself with a scenario that's always going to, you know, see me be let down. So anyway, that package came in this week and I posted it up on my YouTube channel the video is still there if you want to take a look at it sometime. Please subscribe while you're there. Um, but I, um, I, and I opened a box of 2012 Prism when it came out. But I probably haven't gone through a big stack of, of 2012 Prism cards really since then. Um, so it was an awesome blast from the past. So that, you know, even if nothing came out of it, there was a nostalgia cost that was well worth it. Um, so I, I went through that. Like I said, it's on my YouTube. While I didn't find any monsters that could have been in, in there, there were a couple of Jimmy Butler rookies. I think those are $80 cards now. Um, there was a James Harden base card, which is you know 25 or 30 bucks. A Dwayne Wade base card, same thing. Um, so all in all, it was a very a, a good, um, a fun, a profitable experience for $26 way better than opening any blaster for that same cost. Um, and then I'll end that by saying, you know, I show that to people and they say, man, 
you know, you're really lucky. I never find that stuff. Um, and, and I try, you know, I don't want to sound condescending, but my next question will be, are you looking for that stuff? Because I, I probably, you know, right now I'm, I'm not teaching, you know, I'm in my off period. So I might be looking at thousands and thousands of listings before I come across something like that. So, um, you know, that's always my question for people. Are you looking? You're not going to find it if you're not looking. All right. Um, There was one more piece of mail that I want to share with you guys today. And part of why I want to tell some of these stories is to continue to encourage people that there is such a thing as the long game in the hobby. Some of you might be newer to the hobby and you haven't uh, been around long enough to see things play out over time. I want to see you make it to that point. You know, I'm rooting for you. Uh, Or maybe some of you have been around for a while and you could just use a friendly reminder to hang in there and keep looking for those cards that have escaped you up to this point. I know what it's like to be in a drought when you're looking for a certain set or you're looking for cards. Uh, Remember, I just came off of a nine-year chase for a set, right? So that happens, okay? Whatever your situation is, though, I want to be able to share this with you. So what was package number two? Well, as I mentioned on here before, um, I collect Ron Artest cards. And last week I was running through one of my usual patch searches on eBay and I came across a a card that made me audibly gasp. And I know that sounds cheesy. It's almost embarrassing to say that, but you know what? It is what it is. That's what happened when I saw it. So I'm sure some of you might be familiar with that eBay gasp. So what was the card? It was a 2005-2006 Ron Artest Upper Deck Exquisite Limited Logos card number to 50. Uh, And visually, there's some things on this card that kind of clash that would not make you want to gasp in a good way. You've got a blue Pacers patch on a purple card with a King's picture. So why did this card get that kind of a reaction from me? Well, the short answer is I've been hunting for it. But the short answer doesn't do it justice. Okay. Well, my Ron Artest collection, I've talked about it some before, but it's evolved quite a bit over time. It used to be just Pacer stuff uh, with a few Bulls rookies here and there. So I had seen this card in the past, but since it was a Kings card, I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, well, then about three years ago, I got a Tayshawn Prince card from the same set in hand, and I really liked it. And that got me kind of looking and thinking, you know, I'd really like a, a Pacers card from this set. Um, but there there weren't options, and that got me looking at the R-Test again and really reconsidering um, if I wanted it. And I realized that the patch in the R-Test card was from a Pacers ABA throwback jersey, Um, That was something that was unique and captured a couple eras of Pacers history. Um, Also, the, you know, the the card was around the time frame that he was traded. So it does tell a story. So it it checks multiple boxes that I value more so than I used to. So after all of that, sometime in 2018, I decided, you know what, I'm going to pursue this card. So at the time, there were two copies of this thing on eBay in the $100 range. I think one of them was even a little lower at $85. And that was a high price at the time, right? Anything before 2020. Um, 
So I did what I thought was the right thing, and I waited. And they all disappeared. And I assumed that one would surface again. After all, there's 50 copies of the card. Um, but I was going to do everything I could to help make one surface, if possible. So in October of 2018, I made a blowout thread to try and track one down. Well, no luck. Okay. So then in December of 2018, I found an old photo bucket account where a guy had like five copies of this card. So 10% of the print run. And I, you know, I just want one. So he had a lot of these cards. So I cross-referenced his photo bucket account name with some of the popular forums online. And I discovered that he wasn't active on any of the message boards anymore. Um, But that's no reason to stop the search though. So things did take a bit of a weird turn after that. Um, In addition to the Ron Artest cards on his photo bucket, there were a few pictures of him flexing, right? Flexing his muscles. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not what I was out to find, but there's, you know, nothing wrong with that. That's, you know what, that's what I had to run into to get a Ron Artest card, or at least that's what I was thinking. So I guess he was very into working out. You know, I don't remember what it was exactly, but he had a a relatively unique tattoo on his chest and then also one on his bicep. Um, So that left me with a couple of clues. I had a former online alias that he had used and a picture of this guy with some, um, you know, very clear identifiers. So after doing some more searching and matching some pictures up, I was able to track him down on Facebook. Um, so I, at the risk of sounding super stalkerish to, well, to you and to him, uh, I shot him a quick message, something like, hey, I'm looking for somebody that used to go by this username online. Do I have the right person? I didn't go into the backstory of like, hey, I matched your tattoos up. And all that kind of stuff. I just, hey, do I have the right person? He confirmed that it was. I asked if he had any Ron Artest cards. And I think it, you know, really it seemed like he appreciated it. He said, wow, that brings back some memories. I ended up having to basically sell my entire collection of cards to put myself through college and just never got back into it after all the main companies changed after the 08 market crash. So we chatted some more and he said that he was moving soon, but that he would see, you know, everything's boxed up, but he would see if he had anything left and he would send it my way for free as long as I send him some money to cover shipping. So um, this seemed like progress to tracking this card down. Um, And remember, this is a card that at one point I didn't have a lot of interest in, but with each little episode in this journey, it became more and more desirable to me. So we chatted a a couple more times over the next month or two, but it turned out that he couldn't find anything, um, which, you know, I can't fault him for that. It it was disappointing, but um, I appreciated connecting with him. And it's one of those things, you know, you never know down the line where, you know, having these contacts might actually work in your favor, but um, it didn't work this time. And once again, the search went cold. So I, I mentioned earlier that I had made a blowout thread So that was another option that I kept turning to. Over the last year and a half, I bumped that thread eight times. Just, hey, does anybody know where this card is? Has anybody seen this card? With the most recent one being June 14th. So that was about a month and a half ago. Once again, no luck. 
until it was finally listed on eBay a little over a week ago. And, um, well, in this case, it is just a story now of, yes, I bid on it and won. Um, It cost me a lot more than I had hoped. I should have bought it back in 2018 when I saw it. Um, You know, you've probably heard people say to buy rare cards when you see them. Well, this is a great example of where I should have done that. You know, even I'll think, you know, well, there's a couple copies out there right now. I'm safe. Then those couple copies just disappear at the same time. Um, But anyway, I have it. I'm very happy with it. Um, You know, I'll show it off on my social media. And like I said earlier, if you're new to the hobby, I hope that encourages you to think some about the long game. And then if you've been around a while, hang in there. Some of the cards you're looking for will in fact surface over time. But you have to keep working for it. All right. Um, I've got one more topic that I'd like to address this week, and this is really going to be the main segment of this show. Earlier in the week, I got a message on Instagram from a listener named Kyle. Nice name, right? And he asked me if I could talk about some of my biggest regrets when it came to selling cards, be it cards that sold too low at the time or cards that later went up in value. Um, Because I did talk a little bit about my selling philosophy or kind of my selling mindset a a couple of weeks ago. So I think this was a good follow-up question. I'm not going to address it immediately, but I'm going to cycle back to the question toward the end of the show. Because I think talking about this last week of NBA scrimmages and the subsequent um, reactive buying that happened is a good way to frame everything. Because this allows me to continue talking a little bit about my philosophy of selling that I touched on um, not long ago. Now, remember, my mindset is going to be first and foremost as a collector and a collector of raw cards. Um, As always, I'm not telling you what to do. Do your own research. I'm not here to give you, you know, investment advice or advice on players The reason I'll use specific player examples is because they've helped shape my perspective. Because everything I do in this hobby is the result of someone's experience, whether it's mine or whether it's someone else's. Okay, so earlier this week, Bull Bull made his NBA debut with the Denver Nuggets in a scrimmage game. I'm sure you've heard about it, uh, but for those of you that don't know much about him, he's a 7-2 center. Um, he's the son of former NBA player Manute Bull. Um, and by all means, this debut was an impressive outing. He scored 16 points. He grabbed 10 rebounds. He registered six blocks. Well, as you guys know, we haven't seen NBA action since March. And a lot has happened in the hobby since then. We had Shaq rookies go up. We had the rise of Bulls cards with that documentary. We had the metal base cards. We had influencers talking about guys like Devin Booker. So I think, you know, this was really this. I think this was the very first scrimmage game for all of the NBA. If not, it was one of the first two or three. Um, So when the market saw something that was actually performance based and unpredictable, there seemed to be a bit of an overreaction afterward. That's not to say that Bull Bull won't be a good NBA player, but his raw silver prism rookie selling for anywhere between $100 and $150 right now. 
You know, if you compare that to other players that are in that range, that seems a little crazy to me, at least, just to me. Um, so I've had several friends and collectors reach out to me and ask what they should do with their Bull Bull cards. And I don't claim to know everything. I don't get everything right. Um, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on things, though, and, and I think I know what's the right move right now, at least what's the right move for me. But then again, when I think of the year 2020, all I think about is a Weird Al song called Everything You Know Is Wrong. And this, I teased this on my Instagram. This is actually one of his original songs. You know, most of what he did, they were all parodies, but this is one of the originals, and a lot of those are underrated. But if you don't know it, the chorus goes like this. It says, Everything you know is wrong. Black is white, up is down, and short is long. And everything you thought was just so important doesn't matter. Everything you know is wrong. Just forget the words and sing along. All you need to understand is everything you know is wrong. (laughs) Now, maybe that's the new anthem for all of us experienced collectors in 2020, right? Everything you know is wrong. Now, you know, I, I think saying everything you know and wrong is a bit of an overstatement. Obviously, this is a little bit of hyperbole, but... Um, we've seen influencers and new money come in and change things in ways that don't make sense. Um, and even though a lot of these people have paid little to no consideration for the history of the hobby and the people that were there before them, we've had no choice but to adapt. But you know what? Hey, I sold some J.R. Smith and some Dion Waiters cards this week, so it's not all bad, right? Um... But I still think, even though, you know, we say everything you know is wrong and everything's changing, I still think there's some value and there's still some perspective to be gained from past experiences. And that's when people were asking me about bull bull cards, that's ultimately where I drew from when it came time to make a decision for myself and then to talk about it with people that I'm close with that, you know, want my advice and that I'm comfortable talking and giving them advice. Um... Because quite frankly, this isn't the first time we've seen something that's similar to this. Now, the dollar amounts and the price multipliers might be a lot higher, but Summer League of 2018 gave us a couple of examples to help put things into perspective. And um, the first one of those was Harry Giles. I'm not going to talk about this one in detail. Um, If you listen to the newest House of Jordans interview, which came out, I think, last Friday, um... It featured um, G, which is a.k.a. The Lucky Show on Instagram, who's also the uh, Luca Show on YouTube, and he was also part of last week's listener forum. But um, they touched on this a little bit because he went really big on Harry Giles, and he can tell you firsthand how easy it is to get caught up in the hype. Okay, so that would be a good resource to turn to for that. Um the other big example that I want to touch on from 2018 was Philadelphia's Furcon Corkmoss. And, uh, you know, let's look at him real quick today, right? Even though we're talking about an example from 2018, he's still in the league. He's 23 years old, which is still very young. Um, he's averaging nearly 10 points per game while shooting almost 40% from the three-point line. So he's, you know, he's a valuable piece of an NBA team. He's had 30-point games in his career He's not tearing up the league necessarily, but those numbers are still respectable. 
Okay, so back on July 6th of 2018, Furkan dropped 40 points in a summer league game. And it was a big deal. Um, before I go into the pricing, though, and the silver prices, I want to try and paint a picture of the card world in 2018 because you've got to remember that everything is relative, right? So take a guy like Jason Tatum, um, top, top rookie. His raw prism rookie at that time in July of 2018 sold for around $10. I think even the PSA 10 was $35 or $40. Um, and a, a raw silver Tatum at this time was going to run you anywhere from, I think, $200 to $250 from the records that I looked at. Um, but Furcon, if you go back and look at his raw silver prism on July 5th, the day before his big 40-point explosion, a copy sold for $1.25. So then he has his big game, and basically all of the copies under $15 get snatched up. So you know, if you look at it, a card goes from $1.25 to $15. It doesn't seem like a big game. You're talking about $13 and some change. But percentage-wise, that's a huge gain. So we're looking at everything relatively here. Percentage-wise, that's a huge gain. Uh, and then one of his PSA 10 copies sells for $55. Well, then come August 1st, less than a month later, Raw copies were back to selling in the $1 to $3 range. So when Furcon dropped 40 points in the summer of 2018, there were a number of paths that collectors could take. The first one said, wow, this guy has a lot of potential. I'm going to buy more cards. And those people bought right then, even though there was a spike, um, and we were about to enter almost three months without basketball. That's when you're, you know, you got it. Sometimes you got to step back and think about it. But that was path one. I don't want to, you know, be too condescending of that person at this point. The second path said, well, I think this guy has a lot of potential. But I'm going to assume things cool off again and pick some stuff up in a month or so. So maybe some of you out there, maybe you really like what you see in Bull Bull, but you can relate to this a little bit, okay? The third one said, well, I'm just going to hold what I already have because I like what I see. And then the fourth one said, I'm going to sell these now because I can't see them getting much higher or I'm happy with whatever gains I'm going to get at this moment. Okay, so those were, you know, and I'm sure there are other paths, but those are four main ones that I wanted to outline real quick. Well, how did those turn out? What is the status of Furcon Corkmoss cards in the summer of 2020? Because everything's high now, right? Everything's gone up. Well, there was a copy that ended Tuesday afternoon. I'm recording this on Thursday night. It ended Tuesday afternoon for $3.99 plus shipping. I've seen some in the $10 range as well. It just depends on kind of the selling platform and, you know, if there's free shipping or not. We're looking in the $4 to $10 range. Um, so if you immediately bought into the hype, it's likely that you ended up taking a loss unless you can find uh, or unless you found, in this case, a greater fool. If you were one of those people that let things cool off a bit, knowing that you were about to enter a break, it's possible you made a little bit of money in the grand scheme of things. Um, at the very least, you minimized your losses. 
if you had some and held them, you probably didn't have much in them anyway. Um, and then if you were able to immediately move what you had, which is what I would have done if I had silvers, I feel like you got out at a great time. Now, that was all one example from two years ago. Doesn't mean the players are, you know, you can't, doesn't mean that it's apples to apples here. I realize Furcon Corkmoss is not Bull Bull. I realize 2018 is not 2020. Um, but when Bull Bull had this great game, a lot of people found themselves in a similar situation to the one that I just described. Um, and thinking back to Furcon's situation, um, I tried to move my Bull Bull stuff quick because I realized, you know, I think this stuff is going to go down. Um, if it doesn't go down much and I really want it back, I'll still make a little bit. If it doesn't go down at all, then it is what it is. Um, so I tried to move my stuff. I just wasn't quick enough. And I didn't have anything much nicer than a prism base. But if I had a prism silver, it would be gone by now. I can tell you that. And I would be just praying that there would not be a return. Um, you know, because I would see that as an opportunity to move something that I have little to nothing invested in in order to acquire something that would likely stay in my PC for years to come. It's not necessarily a reflection on what I think of Bull Bull's staying power in the league. Um, but let's face it, you know, he wasn't a top prospect. And I know, I know there's other guys like Giannis wasn't either. Um, but think how many players out there right now have rookie silvers that sell for $150 raw. Well, does that mean that I sell everything when it goes up? No, not necessarily, at least not at this point. And that brings us back to the selling regrets that I talked about earlier. Okay, because there are plenty of cards out there that I've owned and sold, and then they took big jumps in prices. Uh, but some of you have got to get this in your head right now. You're not going to be able to sell everything at its highest point. You are going to leave some money on the table. Okay. Um, and that's something I have to tell myself. So I'm not just trying to, you know, talk to you guys. I'm also saying that for my own benefit. Um, but let's go back to these regrets then. Let's look at this in this whole context. Um, here are some selling uh, quote-unquote regrets I have that have drastically altered the way that I move cards today. Okay, so the first one, back in 2005, uh, I was in high school and uh, really never opened Hobby Wax. It just, I, I didn't, um, you know, I as far as I knew it was at Walmart, I just went and got it there. Occasionally Walmart had Hobby Boxes of products. Um, I think there was a Upper Deck Hardcourt product that had some hobby stuff there you know I tried to pick some of that up I know there were blisters that had packs of pristine for like $30 so occasionally I would buy the nicer stuff but it would be the retail hobby version if that makes any sense um, however I did get my hands on a box of Topps Chrome in 2005 which was a big deal for me and I pulled a Chris Paul gold um, rookie refractor so this was by far the biggest card that I'd ever pulled. And I guess in retrospect now, it's probably still the biggest card I've ever pulled. But I posted about the pull on a message board called Sports Card Forum. 
Uh, long story short, I traded the card for a Darren Williams Super Fractor Auto, uh, which was a huge card at the time. Uh, and then I sold that for a little over $400. So I never had that kind of money before. And I, you know, looking back, I can't tell you one thing that I spent it on. I'm sure I probably bought some cards with it, but I probably ended up buying CDs and stuff like that. I was in high school. Um, you know, whatever. It is what it is. And to be honest, I really didn't regret that a whole lot until recently when I saw a raw copy sell for $2,200. Um, but that, you know, that didn't last long because I had to ask myself, why do I regret that? And it, the answer was simple. It was only for the money. I only regretted it because I sold it for $400 15 years ago and now it's worth $2,200. Um, you know... I still didn't want the card itself. I'd love to have a, a Chrome Chris Paul for my rookie binder, but I, you know, I still didn't want the gold necessarily, or I couldn't justify it being worth that much. Uh, I just wanted the twenty-two hundred dollars. So that's you know, really, that's just part of the game. Sometimes you win big, sometimes you lose big. Now there aren't a lot of direct parallels to that today because I feel like I got a fair market value for that card at the time. So let's look at some more recent examples. Um, back when 2018 Prism came out, there was a time period where you could get Luca rookies in the $10 to $20 range. It was very common. Um, so someone, I, you know, I was set up at a local show. Someone else that was set up there had one and he wanted $10 for it. So I bought it and I immediately flipped it for 15 and the main reason was my wife and I had already pulled one that we were keeping. So I had one for my PC. Um, and, you know, after that, I try to do everything I can while I'm sitting there to make my $40 table fee back, um, you know, just maximize what I can in that moment. So percentage wise, going from 10 to 15, that was a good profit. Uh, and that was before 2020, where, you know, everything that comes out of a wrapper now eventually turns to gold. Uh, I didn't regret it at the time. Yes, it's selling for a lot more now, uh, but more than anything, you know, I wouldn't say I really regret it. I just look back at that and laugh. Um, a similar example, I think this was sometime in early 2019. I bought um, the majority of the spots in a Raz, which I don't like to do those anymore, but I, I went through a short phase where I was buying raffle spots in Razes, basically. And it totaled out to something like $35 out of pocket. So I won and the prize was three cards. It was a Luca Prism PSA 9 and then two Lonzo Ball Silver Prisms PSA 9. And keep in mind, at this time, a 9 was about the same in value to a raw card. So Luca, a PSA 9 was selling for around $20 and the Lonzo Silvers were selling for about $15 a piece. So... Um, I kept the two Lonzos and tried to get most of my money back by selling the Luca for $20. Now, granted, I still have both of the Lonzos and they're worth over $100 a piece now. Yes, I know the Luca's worth a lot too. Um, it's just another scenario that makes me laugh, right? Because the moral of these last two stories about all these Luca prisms is this. Um, you know, I'm not selling any Prism rookies of top players until they get really, um, until the value goes up quite a bit now. 
So I pulled three Zions this year, and at the time they were selling for $35 a piece, and I kept all of them. The last I checked, they were in the $200 range. Now, I have no problem moving one for that, um, just because I, you know, there's a lot of that card out there. Um, but especially in today's climate, you know, keep those dollar box cards because you can have one big scrimmage game or one big game, and that can spike to $15 or $20 or $25. Um, in the matter of one night. And uh, I'll move the lower tier players at that price, but not the ones that I, you know, the top picks that I think have the real potential. Okay, um, I've got two more for you. So last year I sold a Giannis Hoops rookie for $20. Now, this is one that I pulled, um, and I waited for this thing to mature for six years. And he won an MVP. And it still didn't go up a ton because quite frankly, before this year, um, Hoops rookies really didn't go up all that much. In fact, up into January, I was buying Kawhi Hoops rookies for like 4 to $7. Um, so anyway, though, I at this point, I thought $20 was a good exit point because that was kind of my strategy for a lot of these guys. Buy them at 4 or 5 get out at 20 um, well, if you've seen prices lately for Giannis, um, that was not a good exit point. Um, but even though I could make more money on it now, my real regret is that I can't put it in the rookie binder that I, which is a little project that I've started. Um, I want to get one key rookie from all of the big players in NBA history. And I could still go out and buy a Giannis, and yes, it would be much more expensive now, but it won't be the hoops rookie that I pulled. You know, I can't, I'd ha- I wouldn't be able to get a 2013 box now anyway, probably. Um, so the money doesn't hurt. You know, I don't regret the money side of it as much as I would just like a hoops rookie for my binder. Um, however, I have reacted to the monetary side as well because I don't want to keep losing money on rookies. You know, you've got to observe what you're doing and what's working and what's not and and react to that. So I talked about this um, briefly a long while ago, but, um, you know, I have no clue what episode it's in. But before his debut, I bought a dozen Zion Hoops rookies for $4 each or less. And at the same time, I bought a dozen John Morant Hoops rookies for $3 each or less. So I'm sitting on a dozen of each of them, and I haven't moved any of them yet. I figure they'll at least reach, you know, $30 at some point. I think Zion might even be past that. But um, even if I only sell those 12 Zions for $30, I'm turning my initial uh, $48 into $360. So if I leave some money on the table by not grading or not moving the card at its all-time peak it's still not going to be a regret. I'm still okay with that, you know, a plus $300 profit. I'm, a, I'm good with that, right? Um, now, I might look back and laugh at the prices it gets to, but it's not a regret. Um, the thing I have to remember, though, and this goes for you guys too, um, I have to tell myself this a lot because I buy a decent amount of lots and I have to piece stuff out. Your card is not worth a certain dollar amount until you have that money in hand or that money in your account because I can't pay for a cheeseburger at McDonald's with a Zion rookie. 
That money will, will never actually be actual, actualized if that stuff is just sitting in my boxes. So at some point, I have to put the work in and sell. Okay, so every regret, quote unquote, that I've outlined so far was a move that I could easily justify at the time. I bought and sold enough stuff that those don't bother me too much, although I would like that Giannis rookie back. The stuff that really bothers me, though, it's few and far between, is stuff from my personal collection that I got rid of and wish I had back. Um, and there's not a lot of that because once you've done it once, um, you pretty much learn your lesson. I've talked about it before, but the big one for me was um, a Ron Artest UD Ultimate one of one that I owned back in the mid-2000s, and I sold it when I was, quote, taking a break. I've not seen that card since. Um, for me, that was a big mistake. You know, I, I bought it for 50 initially. I sold it for 50. I doubt it's gone up a lot in value since then. Who knows? But it's ironic that the one that bothers me the most probably had the smallest gain, if any, over time. Okay, so the point of all this is, I, I hope this makes sense. I hope, you know, everyone can make something of this is that the market has always been reactionary. It might be moving a little quicker now though. Um, you have to figure out a system and a method that you're comfortable with. Because if you're opening packs or buying lots of cards, you're going to have to make some de decisions. Um, not all of them will end up being right. But don't drive yourself crazy over when to sell or stuff you've already sold. It is what it is. If you can justify the moment in the grand scheme of things, and you furthered your collection in some way because of it, it's a win. It's not really a regret. Now, obviously, you don't want to make the same mistakes again and again. If I was still selling Star Prism rookies for pennies on the dollar a year after release, it would show that I haven't learned anything. But if I can take those experiences in the past and grow from them, I'm okay with those decisions. Okay, there you have it. Um, I hope I didn't make a lot of sweeping generalizations today. I know buying and selling isn't always easy, but that gives you a little of my perspective. Maybe you can learn from that or maybe you can adapt parts of it to better suit you. If any of that resonated with you, let me know on my Instagram, which is at Rex Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Rex Museum PC. I also want to encourage you to check out the Basketball Card Podcast this week. Um, hosted by Adam, the Real 27 guy. You guys have heard him on here before. If it's not out today, it should be out any day now. I'll be on this week's episode with him. Um, in fact, we're going to record in an hour or so, so I can't even tell you what, what exactly is going to be on it. I'm looking forward to that. It, it should be fun. Um, in the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.